What an amazing time of worship with our worship team. We got to spend a day in the studio at Nuthouse Studios in the Shoals area recording our worship experience for you. And so Pastor Jason did an incredible job orchestrating all that. Pastor Jason, Pastor Dylan, Reagan, the Melissa Dollarson, Ben Heinkel, and our entire team trying to translate what we do and what we experience on Sunday morning out into the world to you. Some really cool news. We're trying to work on the licensing right now so we can release that recording as an album out into the world on Apple Music and Spotify and all those places like that. And so uh, they've done a great job. The rest of our team, Pastor Marissa, Pastor Anthony, uh, Meredith, Colleen, and Toya, they've done a great job just trying to find ways to thrive through this season and prepare for the next season by serving you guys and, and making sure everything moves forward as a movement and as the mission of Chapel. It's been incredible. And I know you may have the question, well, when are you gonna reopen? Like other states are reopening business and uh, we've been talking for a long time that we think everything's going to scale back in to reopening, especially for large gatherings uh, like churches. So our church, we have 750 to 800 people on a Sunday morning. So it's going to take a while for us to get back to that place, I believe. And so what we've decided with the elders is we believe they're going to scale back in maybe groups of 50 or groups of 100. And so online worship for us is working really well right now. We have stories. I heard a story last night of a young college student who got filled with the Holy Spirit this week. I've heard other stories of people getting saved, other stories of people that found chapel to be their church home in the season. One particular woman who was dealing with anxiety and depression, she actually thinking about driving down to get counseling here at chapel. She found our mind control series uh, on our YouTube channel and listened to it. It set her free and she started making chapel her home, even sent in her tithe money to chapel because she wants to see it extend even further and further and further away. So it's working really well for us right now. So during this season of, of transition, we're going to continue our online worship, but also offer physical gatherings, whatever that may be, according to Governor Ivy's standards. So we're gonna, whatever she says, we're going to roll with and honor her, and, but also maintain safety for our church. So we're going to actually do both as time moves forward. And so hopefully that works out for you and your family and your friends. And, and if you can do us a favor and just share with us, uh, share with the friends, share our YouTube channel, give a thumbs up, subscribe to it, share the Facebook live feed, get what we're doing out into your world and into your network. And so a lot of good stuff going on. If you have your Bibles, you can actually turn to John chapter 20. We're going to be there for a minute. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of questions right now in society and in culture, questions about COVID-19, questions about God, and questions about the end times and prophecy and just questions of the news, all types of questions. And, and I was thinking through just kids, you know, I read years ago, kids asked 288 questions a day. Now, I think during quarantine, it's probably like 288 million questions a day. I know our kids, even RJ, and especially they were younger, to ask questions like, Dad, like, you know, do you think there's more leaves in the world or more blades of grass in the world? I was like, where do you even come up? I'm trying to watch TV, bro. Like, I don't know. Or Dad, like, how do mermaids go potty? I don't know. Like, where do you know? I don't know. Like, hearing all these questions. Why is the sky blue? Why is the ocean salty? All these questions. And what I've discovered is I think adults have just as many questions as kids do. I think we just stopped asking them. I think they're in our minds, they're in our heads, they're in our hearts. We just stopped asking them because we live in a culture where it tells us you shouldn't be asking questions. Just do what you're told to do. Don't ask questions. And so these kids have these questions and they start learning not to ask them. Then they become adults. You have all these questions, but you don't ask them. And I think it's especially bad inside the church. 
inside the church, the church is not normally a place where questions can be asked. It's a place where do what you're told, believe what you're told to believe, etc. And if you have questions, it's almost like you're not supposed to be there. And so when we do that, we, we tell don't ask questions. We actually keep people from pursuing truth and discovering truth. I know I've experienced that in, in my upbringing, in my life. As a teenager, I had lots of questions about God, about the Bible, about church. And here was the answer I was given. You're not supposed to ask those type of questions. And so and I was asking questions like I thought something's wrong with me because maybe God gave me these questions. Maybe, maybe this is from God. And they said, you're not supposed to ask questions like this. And, and they'd push it away because I think church people especially are uncomfortable saying, I don't know. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I don't know. But churches say, instead of saying, I don't know, they said, you're not supposed to ask those questions, which pushed me away to be able to find places I could actually ask my questions to. And so if you have questions, it's not a matter if you're going to ask them. It's a matter of who you're going to ask them to. And as a church, if we push questions away, we're sending tons of people who want to know the truth, who want to discover the truth out into the world to find false truths and false answers by people who don't actually care about their eternal salvation or soul. And so with that, I feel very similar to Thomas in the Bible. John chapter 20, Thomas is an apostle. He was with Jesus from the very beginning. He's one of the 12 disciples. And many times I think in church world, we give him a bad name. We say, well, doubting Thomas. Well, well Thomas really wasn't a doubting individual. When we get the story we're about to get into, it wasn't that he was doubting. It's that the other 11 disciples actually got to see Jesus resurrected. He was the only one that wasn't present. And he didn't get to see Jesus resurrected. He basically told them, he's like, I, I'll believe when I get to see it. You already got to see it. I'll believe when I get to see it as well. And Thomas, you can look at him as his personality that's a loyal, a loyal realist. He was loyal to Jesus. Even when Jesus said, we're going to go resurrect Lazarus, but they had to go through a town which they thought they may be killed because they tried to stone Jesus previously. Thomas says, let's go. I'm willing to die with you. Like he was that loyal. Even when they were going to Jerusalem uh, on the Palm Sunday, when Jesus gave them the instructions, Thomas is the one asking questions about exactly how to accomplish it. So Thomas is this person who's deeply committed, but he's a realist. He wants to find the questions, get the answers so he can do it well. And so I think many of us are like Thomas. We have these, this potential for great exploits of faith, but we also have hesitations and questions we need to get answered. It's incredible. Thomas had these questions that we call him the doubter. But at the same time, he took the gospel further than every other disciple and apostle. He went all the way from Jerusalem all the way to India, planting churches all the way through. And I think it's because he knew how to ask questions and how to get his questions answered. Not by the world, but by Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, John chapter 20, we're going to be in verse 24. It says this, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He says, Unless. And I think most of us have an unless. Unless I see this, or unless God answers this, or unless I learn this, or unless I, I see this done. A lot of us have an unless. We're just not open enough to actually say unless. And I think that unless is the asking or prayer. Well, unless I see this, I'm going to struggle. Unless I see this, I can't move forward. And it's a, a cry out from Thomas to see the same thing the disciples saw. And so then eight days, eight days after this, 
the disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, now Thomas didn't ask the question to Jesus, but he, Jesus says to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, put your, out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, I have You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas gets his questions answered by Jesus without even asking the question. His, his belief was exercised in his asking. And for me, like I, I see this, I, I believe Jesus shows Jesus the answer to your questions that you're asking. He's also the answer to the questions you are not asking. And Jesus is the solution to the pain you are experiencing. We see this in the story, that the, the questions that Thomas was asking, Jesus answered. The questions he wasn't asking, Jesus answered. And the pain that, that he experienced by being left out of seeing the resurrection, Jesus was the solution to his pain. And right now, there's tons of questions going around about faith and about life and about COVID and about culture and about experience and about faith. all these questions. And I want to tell you, Jesus is the answer to those questions. If you're experiencing pain, anxiety, depression, fear, stress, sickness, disease, Jesus is the solution to your pain and your suffering. And we see this right here in this story because we all have questions. We all have concerns. But the key is, like Thomas, don't let your questions push you away from Jesus. Allow your questions to draw you closer to Jesus. Because you see, Jesus wasn't frustrated with the questions that he was asking. He wasn't frustrated with Thomas. He didn't say, well, I'm not going to show up in the room because Thomas, that doubter, is there. Many times we think that if we ask questions of God, if we ask questions, if we ask in prayer for things, that Jesus will be frustrated. He isn't frustrated with Thomas in this scenario. He isn't upset. He isn't mad. He actually shows compassion and moves towards Thomas. He doesn't move away from He moves towards Thomas. And so our questions, if we ask them correctly, actually draw us closer to Jesus. They don't push us away. I think it's powerful that we realize that he wasn't even worried about the questions of Thomas. He just moves straight through to run towards Thomas. And so maybe you are like Thomas. Maybe you have these great moments of, of faith, but then moments of despair. Maybe you have great moments of hope, but then moments of hopelessness. Maybe you have great mountaintop experiences with God, but you also have these valley moments. Maybe you have great moments of peace, but then you also deal with heavy anxiety. Maybe it's fear and courage. That's, that's who this Thomas is. He's, he goes to these pendulum swings. And so maybe I want to set you free. Some of you are skeptics. Maybe you don't believe in God. I want to set you free. God is not intimidated by your questions. God is not confused by your questions. Maybe you're a Christian and you feel like you're one of these believers. That you go from these great confident moments to these low confident moments. Maybe you go from great peace to the dealing with anxiety and you feel, you feel like you're ashamed because of this anxiety. Right now, you can see that the difference between swinging that pendulum is not just pushing through. Thomas swung the pendulum from unbelief to belief through his questions. And many times our faith is revealed in our questions. And there's a great story in Mark chapter 9. There's a father who has a son, and his son has had epilepsy his entire life, and so bad that his son would actually go into seizures and it would throw him into the fire. And he's afraid his son's going to die by burning. 
He said sometimes they'd throw him into the water. He was afraid he was going to die by drowning. And this man had heard that Jesus was healing people. And he got his son. He came to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you can, heal my son. Now, he had enough faith to pack up, bring his son, and find Jesus. And he says, if you can. And Jesus says, if I can. Like, who are you talking? Like, who are you, who are you talking to? If I can. He says, nothing is impossible for those who believe. And so this father who's dealing with this anxiety and this fear for his son, but also has a little bit of faith, he's pursuing after Jesus. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus reaches down and heals his son. And see, some people in church world say, well, no, you just got to believe. You can't have any belief in your heart. You can't have any belief. And, da, da, da. and this man had belief and unbelief, yet Jesus still healed his Son, And I want to help move you from a place of unbelief to belief. Because Jesus is not intimidated by your doubts, by your questions, or your unbelief. And with this man in the story, man, I read this scripture almost every single day for years. As our, our daughter, Alicia, who has just turned 17 years old today, my oldest born, my first baby, made me a father, made me a dad. Years ago, the day after Christmas, my mother-in-law brought Alicia downstairs and she laid her on the floor. She was in an epileptic seizure. I couldn't stop it as a dad. I'd never seen anyone have a seizure before. And I'm holding my daughter, praying, and I'm helpless. Like, I'm helpless as a father. As a dad, like, you're supposed to be the, the hero. You're supposed to be able to take care and, and, and save your child. And I'm praying and nothing's working. I'm praying and nothing's happening. We go through doctors and hospitals and EEGs and, and MRIs, all these things. They finally tell us, like, she has a form of epilepsy that's probably gonna be with her the rest of her entire life. There was a small chance that she could grow out of it, but there was also some lesions on her brain that they found in the MRI. And they said, even if she grows out of the epilepsy, those lesions on her brain will be there forever because the brain cannot restore itself. And so I'm leaving frustrated. Like, I believe in you, God. I believe you're a healer, but I'm struggling right now. And I'm frustrated right now. I like Thomas, I'm frustrated. And we were praying and praying and praying and fasting. And I'd come to the scripture in Mark 9. And I'd say, well, God, what about Elisha? I literally wrote that in my Bible. And it said, his son was healed. I put, what about Elisha? And we were standing in prayer lines and praying healing, seeing other people healed. Yet Elisha not healed yet. It took years, but all of a sudden, her epilepsies started going away. Less and less routine. And all of a sudden, it had been a long time since we'd seen her have a seizure. Took her to the doctor to EEG. There was no signs of any epilepsy left. And they said, we think she's cured. We have to get another EEG to make sure we qualify or, or confirm that. They did another MRI and they said, whoa. They said, this is crazy. They said, you know, she could possibly grow out of the epilepsy, but her brain lesions are gone. Like God healed her just like he did this, this son or this child in Mark chapter 9. Even in my unbelief, God still healed her. I believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe you're in that situation. I believe. I believe God can save my son who's a prodigal, but I'm struggling with unbelief. I believe God can heal my wife of cancer, but I'm struggling with unbelief. Don't get frustrated in the middle. Take your questions to Jesus. Let them draw you closer to Him, for He is the answer to the questions you're asking, even the questions you're not asking, and He's the solution to the pain and the frustration you're experiencing. You see, the questions are key, and every question isn't just a question. The question is revealing something behind the question. It's revealing a heart. It's revealing belief. 
And when your questions seek after truth, when they seek after Jesus, it's re- your questions reveal faith and belief. But when your questions begin to undermine your commitment to Jesus, that's not faith. That's unbelief, and it's pulling you farther away. Because we all know that some questions are designed to draw us closer to God, but some questions we ask to push God away. Some questions are merely a mask or a camouflage to camouflage our own rebellion, where we don't want to submit to God. We don't want to submit to His truth. We don't want to submit to His ways. So we're asking questions to kind of clear our conscience so we can keep going our direction without taking responsibility for His truth. We see this with young people. They'll ask questions like, well, what about people that have never heard the gospel before? What about people in a faraway land that haven't heard the gospel? And what they're doing is they're deferring attention or trying to take attention away from their responsibility and place that on somebody else. What they're really saying is, I don't want to take responsibility for the truth of the gospel. So I'm going to try to push that off onto somebody else. And the, the answer would be, we're not talking about somebody else. We're talking about you. We're talking about you. What is your response to the truth of the gospel? So you see questions will reveal the truth of the heart. Your questions will reveal the truth or the reality of what's inside of you. That's why when Thomas asked the question, Jesus didn't get frustrated because it was coming from a place of seeking after Jesus. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, when you come face to face with the mysteries of God, flee the mysteries and run straight to Jesus. When you encounter the the, the faces of the mysteries of God, Flee the mysteries and run towards Jesus because that's where the answers are found. And so you see in this story, Thomas asks these questions. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in a locked room. Why was the room locked? Because they were facing persecution for being Jesus followers. People were wanting to kill them and, and persecute them and martyr them. And so they're hiding away, getting together. All the disciples, this time Thomas is present in a locked room and Jesus shows up, what that tells me is that you can't hide from Jesus. You can't run far enough away. You can't lock enough doors. Jesus is right where you are. Even if you don't want him there, he is there. He shows up in a locked room right there with Thomas. In Thomas's unbelief, in Thomas's doubt, in Thomas's questions, Jesus is pursuing Thomas more than Thomas is pursuing Jesus. And he shows up and he doesn't try to persuade Thomas with a theological debate or discussion. He didn't try to persuade him with mental teaching or conversation. Take him to a a 16-week semester class on the proof and existence of Jesus. He didn't take him to a, a seminar. He didn't take him to a conference. What he does, he begins to ask Thomas, let me see your hands. Instead of taking it to the mind, he takes it right to the person of Thomas. He says, let me see your hands. And Thomas pulls his hands out. He says, put your hand right here, my nail scars. Thomas, take your hand and put it right here on the wound on my side. And what's crazy is when Thomas was needing to know the existence of Jesus, Jesus pointed to his pain and to his suffering. He pointed to his own personal pain. He said, Thomas, this was for you. Thomas, this suffering was for you. And so many times we lose sight that Jesus points to his existence through the reality and the humanity that he was God on earth earth. He was God in human form. And Jesus points right back to that humanity to say, Thomas, look at me. Look at me, Thomas. And Thomas looks at him and realizes, because my Lord, my God. Man, that's crazy. You know why that's crazy and ironic? Is because the world uses pain and suffering as trying to prove that God is not existent. The world uses pain and suffering in our world and evil in the world to say, well, there can't be a God that exists because there's too much pain in the world. 
There can't be a good God in heaven because there's too much evil in the world. There can't be a good, loving God because there's too much suffering in the world. The world uses pain and suffering as an obstacle to the existence of God. Yet in this story, Jesus uses pain and suffering as the proof for the existence of God in the flesh. He uses pain and suffering as the proof for our need for God. He says, look right here at me. See, all pain, all suffering, all evil points to something. There's no such thing as pain and vanity. All pain points to something. And so maybe you, maybe you have questions like that. That how could a loving God, a good God, allow COVID-19 to just stop our world? How could a good and loving and all-powerful God allow cancer to devastate families? How could a good and loving God allow crime and violence and wars happen in a world like How could a good God allow people to rape young boys and young girls? How could a good God allow abortion and the murder and killing of young infants in the womb? How could a good and loving God? And maybe you got caught up in the trap of allowing the world to tell you those things prove that God is far away from you. Those things prove that God is not real. And maybe that's feeding your unbelief. I want to do just like Jesus did in this scripture. Instead of letting it fuel your unbelief, I want to allow pain and suffering to point to Jesus. I want to take pain and suffering and allow it to fuel your faith, to overcome that obstacle and swing the pendulum back to faith and peace and hope and strength and power in your life. And so the first thing you need to know about pain and suffering is that God did not create evil. He did not create pain and suffering. We did. When God created the heavens and the earth, when He created every little detail, every tree, every water, every star, every, everything we see, every time He finished creating it, He said, it is good. He was actually trying to replicate heaven on earth. He said, that is good, that is good, that is good, that is good. And the earth was full of peace. There was no violence. There was no crime. There was no sickness. There was no disease. There was no COVID-19. There was no, no problems at all. There was no suffering. There was no evil. It was perfect, just like heaven. Then God placed Adam and Eve, created them, placed them in the garden. Now the first humans, the first people were there. And this is what he says in Genesis 1.28. He says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And that word dominion is a key word. That word dominion means to have control, responsibility, domain, power, like you're responsible for this. God is saying, listen, I'm staying in heaven. I'm giving this to you and now you are responsible for it. So what's crazy is God creates it, then he gives it to us. And then us and our free will and our freedom to choose, it didn't take long before Adam and Eve chose a different direction, a different direction in heaven and chose their own way. And as soon as they made this decision and sinned and rebelled against God, as soon as they made the decision, pain comes into the world. Shame comes into the world. Guilt comes into the world. The first thing that happens is we find out Eve is going to have pain in childbirth. Adam's going to have pain and suffering through working the ground and toiling the ground. Then all these evils come into the world. Next thing you know, Cain and Abel are killing one another. Next thing you know, there's rape and murder. We see Noah's ark has to come back and try to start over and reset it again. See, God created everything perfectly. We created evil. We created pain. We created suffering and our bad decisions and thinking we get it all figured out, thinking we can go our own way and do our own thing. And the only way to really explain it is a couple philosophical examples or illustrations of evil and pain and suffering. Like if I had a wound in my arm, 
that wound would be in my arm. The wound is not actually a real thing. It doesn't actually exist. You can't take a wound off of a body. Like the wound is the deterioration of something good. The wound is something that's being torn up of something good. And so with the wound, it's deteriorating or destroying or, or de breaking something that's healthy and good. It doesn't exist on its own. Also a tree, if you see a tree and it begins to rot, the rot is not a real thing. It doesn't exist outside of the tree. The tree's a good thing. It's healthy. But the rot begins to hurt and destroy and break down the tree. You may see it in an old car. If you drive by a car lot or an old junkyard, you see a car begins to rust. Rust isn't a real thing. Rust is the corrosion of something that's good that was built to last. See, evil is not really a real thing. It doesn't exist on its own. It only exists in the deterioration of something good. Pain only exists when you know the joy of no pain. Suffering only exists when you know the joy of happiness and hope and peace. See, evil and pain and suffering is not a real thing. It's the corrosion of that which God created perfectly. He gave us a perfect earth, a perfect world, a perfect life, and we've taken it. And we just started to rot it out, to rust it apart, and to create wounds and harm and sickness and disease and crime. We created it, not God. But God will use it. God will use the pain we create. God will use the pain, the suffering, and the evil we create to accomplish His purpose. He actually does it in the Scripture. He points to His pain and His suffering to point to His purpose. In Romans 8, we know that God works all things together. He takes what the enemy meant for evil and He turns it to good. What that means is God takes evil. God takes pain. God takes suffering. Even though He didn't create it, He will use it to accomplish His purposes, which is the point back, all point. All pain points to something. Pain points to, if you go to the doctrine of a pain, the pain may be in your finger, but it may be a symptom of something else. If, you, if your finger hurts, maybe your finger is broken. If your heart hurts, if you're tired, maybe that's point. See, pain points to a greater symptom. Pain points to a greater disease. And when God, we see pain and suffering and evil in the world, it doesn't mean God's not here. Maybe it means God's trying to get our attention. Maybe God is using the pains, the temporary pains of life to point us to an eternal healing. Maybe God's allowing suffering in this life to point to an eternal glory. God, even though He didn't create it, He'll use it. So right now when you see pain and suffering in the world, don't run away from it. Find out what it's pointing to. Even C.S. Lewis, the great, great author, said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts to us in our pain. It is a megaphone to the entire world. He's saying pain is shouting to us, look at Jesus, look to God, look to something other than what the pain you're experiencing. And so maybe you have pain in your life. What's that pain pointing to? Because the third part is this, that God will allow the pain and suffering and evil to point to something, but the solution to pain, even though He didn't create it, even though God didn't create evil, we did, even though He allowed it to point to His greater good, he is the solution. Jesus is the solution to all evil, all pain, and all suffering. At the end of days, when we go to heaven, all pain is destroyed. There's no sickness, no disease, no mourning, no grief, no sorrow. All evil is destroyed. All suffering is destroyed. And God takes it back to the way it was before He put men in charge. See, heaven is about God restoring and redeeming His dominion. When we had dominion, when we have control, when we're in charge, we rot it out, we rust it out, we corrode it. But when God gets dominion again, He solves all the pain, all the suffering, all the evil.
And Thomas looks and he sees the pain and suffering of Jesus. He says, my Lord, my God, my Lord. He realized the pain and suffering was pointing to the solution, which was Jesus. Thomas, this, this man who we think is dealing with doubts, now picks up, he goes to the upper room 40 days later, but he's also the same disciple that takes the gospel all the way to India and lays his life down as a martyr because he found the answer to the questions he was asking. He found the solution to the pain and to the suffering, to the evil he had faced. And that's why Jesus, when he sits there, he says, listen, believe, don't disbelieve. Believe, don't disbelieve. Meaning belief is a choice. Faith is a choice. He's telling Thomas, now that you've seen, you have a choice to believe or disbelieve. St. Augustine said, faith is believing what we don't see, but the reward is seeing what we actually believe. Meaning faith is believing what I cannot see, but the reward of faith is to see what I actually believe. And he tells Thomas, don't disbelieve, believe. Meaning you have a choice to make with your faith. You have a choice to make in your faith. Will you put faith in your faith or will you put faith in your doubts? One person said, doubt your doubts, not your faith. Place your faith. You have a choice to believe or to disbelieve. And your questions will lead you to one scenario or the other. But then also he says, Jesus finalizes this kind of conversation. He said, you believe because you've seen, Thomas. But blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And what he's saying, there's a greater blessing on you and I because we haven't seen the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. We haven't seen the wound in his side. There's a blessing for faith. In Hebrews 11:6, 6, it says this, When without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, there is a reward for your faith, and your, faith, your, your reward to your faith is this, that you believe what you cannot see, but the reward is God changes your seeing to true reality. Old school illustration, take a, a glass of water, it's about two-thirds full, and you put a spoon into that glass. And you look at the glass, the spoon will look like it's broken. It's called refraction. When you look through the water, it looks like the spoon bends and it breaks towards the top, and the handle comes out a different direction. And so that refraction makes something that looks, looks broken that actually is not broken. It makes something look bent that actually is not bent. And see, the world, we look through the world through the lens of the world. And so some things that look broken, some things that look evil, some things that look off may actually just be refracted by the lens of the world. And when you have faith, faith doesn't see what you see. Faith sees what the truth says it is. And so faith sees as you pull that spoon out of the water, how that spoon is still perfect and straight the way it's supposed to be created. And so the reward of faith is you begin to change how you see life. Instead of seeing life through pain and suffering and evil, you start seeing it through the solution of Jesus. Instead of seeing evil all around you, you start seeing hope all around you. Instead of seeing suffering all around you, you see joy all around you. Instead of you seeing the world falling apart, you see the world being restored. See, your faith has a reward. Let your questions lead you to greater faith. Seek Jesus to be the answer to your questions. Seek Jesus to be the solution to your pain and to your suffering, to your evil. Because here's my challenge. I don't want to be a church that pushes questions away. I want to be a church that embraces the seeker, that embraces the person who has the questions so they can find their answers, not in the world, but in Jesus. In a time like this, there's people all over the world who have questions about pain and suffering, have questions about Jesus, have questions about heaven, have questions about life, and we have the answer. Jesus is the answer to all the questions they're asking. 
and all the questions they're not even asking yet. But he's also the solution to the pain they're experiencing, to the suffering they're seeing, and to the evil they've witnessed. Let's go carry the answer. Father, we thank you for the blessings. That even though we didn't get to be in that room with Thomas and with the other disciples and with Jesus, we stand here knowing that you answer every question we have. And Father, we're not standing in, in knowledge, which is understanding. We're standing in truth, which is trust. And we trust, we know the fact that the resurrection is real. We know that Jesus is the answer. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. And we know that every problem is solved in Him. And right now, Father, we place our trust. We place our faith in the resurrected Jesus. We're going to let our pain, our suffering, all the evil we see point us back to Jesus. We face the mysteries of you. We're not going to run away from truth. We're going to run closer to truth. We're going to sit at your feet. And just like all the people that encountered Jesus while he was on earth, he was answering their questions about the kingdom. And Father, we submit our questions to you through prayer. Father, we ask for greater revelation, greater knowledge, greater power. We even pray that you help our unbelief. And Father, as you do, we'll flee from here and go wherever you send us to go. Just like Thomas, we'll go from city to city, from person to person, carrying the answer and carrying the solution wherever we go. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.